David McKnight is director of the Annenberg Rare Book and Manuscript Library at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries. Prior to accepting the position at the University of Pennsylvania in 2006, he was director of the Rare Book and Manuscript Library and head of the Digital Collections Program at McGill University Libraries, where he worked in various roles for 15 years. A past president of the Bibliographical Society of Canada, McKnight is currently founding co-director of the Philadelphia Avant-Garde Studies Consortium and a member of both the Grolier Club and the Philobiblon Club in Philadelphia. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. Today we're here to talk about this lovely, bright, new catalogue of an exhibition entitled Printing the Canadian Imagination, which took place at the Bruce Peel Special Collections Library at the University of Alberta earlier this year? Correct. The exhibition uh, was launched uh, on April 26th, okay. uh, 2018, and it ran right through to the end of August of, uh, of 2018 as well. The exhibition really is based on 30 years of thrilling? Thrilling collecting. In 2012, uh, I decided, uh, after having lived in the United States for six years, this is a bit of a confession, I decided that my Canadian small press little magazine collection, to which I was no longer actively adding materials, although I was still subscribing at that time, to several um, publishers, including uh, Rob McLennan's Above Ground Press, of which I still have a subscription. Um, I decided that rather than the, the materials languishing on the shelves in my home, they would be better placed in an institution. Yes, I was collecting over 30 years, but around uh, 19... 95, after I had completed my, my MA thesis on uh, doing a descriptive bibliography of Canadian little magazines from 1940 to 1980, that what I had created was a research collection. <clears throat> As a professional rare book librarian, I spend much of my time uh, working with donors and book dealers um, in terms of identifying collections of research value. The notion is to get the materials into the hands of scholars and students so that they can make use of this in documenting particularly print culture, of which I'm a great advocate and uh, a participant in, I suppose, professionally. I'm a bit surprised, actually, uh, by this. Uh, if you've spent 30 years uh -huh. around this material collecting... Mm -hmm little magazines and <coughs> chapbooks and literary magazines and such. You've seen all sorts of things. Yeah. Didn't you have any ideas of your own about this that you felt the world needed to know about? Well, um, I felt that I had made a contribution with my MA work here yeah. at Concordia University. Uh, and this may sound narcissistic, but I, at, at this point around mid-90s, 2000, that I had, I don't want to say that I had complete, I had found every last piece that might make the ideal collection. But now I had already acquired runs of more than 
600 periodicals <laughs> representing 7,000 issues. I had a very good coach house collection, which I had been working on separately. I'd also acquired through, uh, after the death of my mentor, Wynne Francis, who was a pioneer in the field of Canadian small press publishing, who taught at Concordia for 40 years. I acquired Wynne's uh, small press archive. And so this it, it merged into this large collection, uh, archival uh, and imprint collection, representing 60, 70 years of modernist publishing in Canada. I didn't envision writing a book about this. There had already been a book written by Ken Norris, the little magazine in Canada. Um, there's still opportunities to write perhaps a comprehensive history of the small press. Roy McSkimming has attempted something like that uh, in his... Uh, Perilous Trade. Perilous yeah. Trade, uh, with more emphasis on commercial publishing necessarily than independent non-commercial publishing. So I felt it was time. I was... My, my dear wife was reminding me that we had to start downsizing <laughs> because I had 10,000 books in the house anyway and I have other collections in addition to this major collection. And I felt that uh, it had matured to the point, like a bottle of wine, that it was ready for um, an institution to take over the responsibility of cataloging it and making it accessible. And that was really the motivation for that. I felt that it had matured and that it was ready for um, prime time in an institution. I had some anxieties about the notion that an institution might not want to accept responsibility for this. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there were competing institutions. Um, Which were they? Uh, McMaster, for example, uh, although my colleague Carl Spadoni, former head of Rare Books at uh, McMaster, said he'd be interested, but he had many of the imprints and some of the magazines and some of the correspondence that I had. So he didn't feel that that was the best place to, to place it. And, and I took his cue from that. Uh, I thought about uh, Dalhousie, which had a very good small press collection, and the University of Toronto, the Fisher Library. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're really the, the premier library they in Canada. They, they, they acquire, they're, they're actually doing a, doing a great job of acquiring all, like almost everything, right? Absolutely, and um, there were I there was I had some brief discussions with a f the former acting head of uh, the Fisher and Donterman, um, who shared my passion for small press and little magazines, and in fact, around two thousand, we had applied for a uh, uh, a grant to create a comprehensive database of small press and little magazines. We didn't get funded, so that project went to the wayside. Now they've gone on to do other things. Uh, Carl Spadoni did a really nice website at um, McMaster uh, promoting uh, Canadian small presses and so on. And I contributed to that, actually. I wrote the entry on Contact Press. So That's uh, just sort of sitting there, though. It's, it's sitting died. It, it, well, because It's there, but it's... It, it's, it's the classic... Web, it's tragic. It, well, it's the classic uh, website story. You know, you, enthusiasm, somebody leaves, and it's abandoned, and then the next thing you know, uh, it, it's deep-sixed, uh, so to speak. It's a 404 error message that you get. So... In 2012, it just seemed to be the moment to make the move to um, find a home for the little magazine small press collection and imprint archive. There's one glaring omission here, 
mm-hmm. in the list of institutions that you either approached or that expressed interest, and that's the National Library of Canada or the Library and Archives Canada. Well, to be honest with you, I've lost confidence in the National Library of Canada, and I think many of us in the field of rare books and uh, descriptive bibliography and the history of the book are, generally speaking, disappointed. To be honest, uh, I spent probably the equivalent to six months in the stacks in the National Library around 1989, during that very generous year of time that I had to do literally site research right across the country, from Halifax to UBC, with stops along the way to look at institutional collections. Because going back to our earlier discussion about the materiality of the object and also possession, at the same time as I was acquiring, I was learning about the magazines that I didn't have, and then I would go and search for those and add them to my collection. So it was a revelatory process. But because of the disappointment, because of the wealth on the one hand of the collections, little magazine collection in particular at the National Library. There is a wealth? Oh, they have a wealth of materials. It's amazing. Now, one of the unfortunate things about the National Library's collection is that in some cases, like many libraries, the institutional decision was particularly with serials or periodicals is to bind them so that you may lose covers, you may lose back covers, and so on and so forth, vital information. So on the one hand, for skimming through contents, I made copious, copious notes about contents for each individual entry in the MA thesis. So it was a descriptive bibliography modeled on a much earlier study of the American Little Magazine done by... um, by Hoffman in uh, 1945, the American Little Magazine in America. Mm-hmm. That served as my model for my MA thesis. So it would have been great to have had the National Library accept the collection, but I felt that it was not appropriate. I'd also mention. What do you mean, not appropriate? Well, it just, I didn't want to go, I didn't, it, the worst fear for a collector who's making a donation to a university of a major, particularly large collection, is that. And somehow or other, you want to be able to have some assurance that the university or the institution is going to process it, make it accessible, cherish it, do an exhibition from time to time. Sometimes you can... Celebrate it. And celebrate it and make it accessible. And I didn't feel that, and particularly with the loss of 395 Wellington, that was where the original National Library of Canada was located. They're they're still there. It's still there, but so here's my coup, so to speak. In 1996, I did a, I think I did, the last major exhibition mm-hmm. at the National Library. Yeah, Coach House. The Coach House exhibit, the New Wave Canada exhibit. And that was a thrill. And that illustrated the strength of, they had acquired the um, Coach House Press papers. They had the Nicky Drumbolas Coach House imprint collection. I mean, he, Nicky probably had the most comprehensive Coach's collection in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked for the press. He dumpster-dived behind the press. Uh, with his connections, he was able to get amazing things. So he was, in some sense, a model for me when I focused on Coach's because I managed to build a pretty significant Coach's collection, which is now at Alberta. That brings us back to, the, to yes, the, the exhibition that took yeah. place. 
But perhaps you could just detail what happened with Alberta. Why did you go there? Well, having surveyed several institutions, again, I think it's partially in this business a question of personal relationships. My colleague, uh, Carl Spadoni, who had retired from uh, McMaster at this point, was working as an independent consultant for the University of Alberta. I had talked to Carl um, over the early part of the new millennium in the 2000s. I said, Carl, I'm giving some thought now to trying to find an institution that will accept this collection. He said, well, you know, let's talk in a few years. I had to wait 12 years for that conversation, but he said, well, you know, I've talked to Marilyn Testad, who's the Associate University Librarian for Collections, and he's very interested in the collection. So at that point, um, that through um, Carl serving as the deal breaker here, the go-between, and I knew Merrill Distad independently as a member of the Bibb Society of Canada, that perhaps this was the moment, especially with the exp sincere expression of interest in it taking on this massive collection. Um, they agreed to send a rare book a rare book dealer down to do an evaluation. Uh, I gave them lists. Uh, they were excited and thrilled to have the collection because they didn't have anything of this nature within the scope of the Peel, uh, the Bruce Peel uh, Special Collection Center. And so at that the, point, they had some money. They had well, well they had money to. Uh, this was a pure donation. I did not sell the collection. I donated it. But you got a tax. I got. Credit. A, I was able to. One of the attractive reasons for doing this, because other institutions couldn't provide this service, was that. Couldn't? Couldn't. The University of Alberta ha Libraries has a foundation in Chicago. So I could donate the collection through the foundation and get a U.S. tax receipt. Perfect. There was also another factor, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll confess this as well. As you probably know as a collector, and you may know other collectors, that collectors have partners and wives. And when you fill your house full of books and your wife continues to look agog at you and say, what are you doing now? Uh, I know what are about. you doing now? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I felt that I had to demonstrate to her that uh, the collection had monetary value. She knew that it had intellectual and cultural value. Yeah, I, I usually get, it's not worth anything until you sell it. I keep, I, you know, often I'll say, look what I found. I only paid 10 bucks for this, and online it's worth 200 Even so, in my case, um, my wife Lillian Eyre, who is a professor, she teaches, uh, her profession is music therapy. She teaches at, a, at Temple University in Philadelphia. All along it has been the fundamental battle between the notion of collecting and use. You don't read your books, she'll say. Yeah. I use my books, and then I get rid of them. I said, well, I collect books. And then we have to go into the, into the wonky world of collecting. I remind her that it's not matchbooks, it's not bottle tops, it's books and periodicals. It's ideas. And ideas. And uh, so, at any rate, I was able to demonstrate that, uh, that it had... Uh, monetary value. <laughs> very good. So that must so have that, been very satisfying. Well, it was until, uh, you know, uh, uh, the reality is that as those shelves emptied, they've been, ref 
they've been replenished. Of course, <laughs> I've, I've gone off in a whole. I've gone off in a whole new direction, which um, I may talk about later. But I've gone off in a whole new direction. And um, at any rate, uh, so so we're in Alberta. We're in Alberta. So Alberta accepted the collection. They agreed to have it evaluated. Uh, they agreed to have it shipped. Uh, it was a pure donation. Yeah. And in acknowledging the gift, um, I agreed to, or their reception of the gift, and I agreed to do an exhibition. The exhibition was supposed to take place around 2015, but uh, there were a number of other complicated issues, particularly with my work in Philadelphia at, the, at UPenn and so forth. And I just didn't have time to work on this exhibit. So it was delayed until 2017. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the incoming head of um, the Bruce Peel Special Collection Center, uh, Robert Demeray, was um, very enthusiastic, enthusiastic about the collection. And that really uh, was exciting. And then when I spent a week there last, in the summer of August of 2017, the, the team... Bruce Peel Center was incredible, and they responded incredibly well to the materials for the planning of the exhibit. And the catalog, of course, was a, a separate enterprise, but the goal of the catalog was to provide contextual historical information about the collection and also to provide a visual uh, experience, which I think they've done a very good job of the variety of materials in the collection. Mm-hmm. Because one of the... Uh, aside from um, using little magazines as a way of tracking literary history and individual authors, uh, there is the material component. And uh, little magazines and small presses were produced in using um, a variety of technologies from letter, hand, hand press to um, photocopy machines mm-hmm. and everything in between, and certainly mimeograph machines. So. I'm also interested in the technical story about the production of literature in the country. Yeah, and that very much so is important to uh, Stan Bevington. Technology, he he just adopted and adapted technology in a really almost genius fashion to be able to produce some of these amazing books. That was certainly what got me hooked on, on Coach House books, where their, their singular un- beauty. Yeah, in fact, I'm not sure, uh, do they fit in? You've got a, a variety of different sections in yes. the catalog. Coach House is the first, and then we have micro presses, Canadian small presses, yeah. which, which Coach House is the premier example of. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you've got other Canadian small presses, Canadian little magazines, Quebecois. And uh, I concluded with uh, the archive. Catalog, what, what do you mean the archive? The, the catalog and the exhibition uh, mirrors uh, the nature of my collection. Yeah. I had been collecting Coach's books earnestly from 1972, although I had copies of James Rainey's Alphabet in my collection and... I became acquainted with the publishers of Applegar's Follies and got involved in that little magazine production. And Applegar's, uh, one of the spin-offs that I should note is Brick Magazine. 
It's a pretty decent spin off. Well, it was, it was originally, the first couple of issues were modeled on the production of Apple Gars mm-hmm. uh, that were printed on a AB Dick offset printing press and had, they used courier font. And uh, the notion of a book review, a contemporary book review journal uh, was very appealing. And, um, and that's how Brick started. Um, Stan, uh, I've forgotten his last name at the moment. But Not Draglin. Yeah, Stan Draglin was the editor of, of, of Brick, the original editor. Uh, but it's evolved into an international literary magazine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's an, its own story in itself. But um, I became initially attracted to um, two presses in the early 70s. One was the Coaches Press. And the other was James Lachlan's New Directions. Mm-hmm. The New Directions project really got off the ground. I was buying new edition, new, new titles under the New Directions imprint. But when I got here, moved to Montreal in 79, 80, I started to uh, patronize the word bookstore. And uh, there I would find um, early New Directions published in the 40s, particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Montreal was clearly, um, because of its stature as a literary city, with, with many fine writers and so on, living here, uh, and m- many fine bookshops, it was not, uh, it was clear that New Directions books were being sold in the city, and now they were being offloaded as secondhand books. Mm-hmm. And I've gone on to develop a, a large New Directions collection at home. But it was really the novelty as a young Canadian. I mean, when I was 20 years old in, uh, in 1972, and to discover the Coach House books and their design and to get copies of uh, Dainty Monsters or uh, One I Love by Victor Coleman and introduced to B.P. Nickel and uh, Journey of Returns. These books were just fantastic. They, they bespoke the period in terms of their materiality. Yeah, well, they also, I think... Compared to what Canadian book design was for the first half of the century. Absolutely. It's such a wonderful bursting of uh, color and creativity. There were some examples, particularly uh, at uh, the University of Toronto Press in the late 40s, mm. when um, there was uh, they, uh, the University of Toronto Press uh, published Here and Now, which was a, an important. A uh, little magazine, Paul Arthur. Paul Arthur, yeah, and it was beautifully done. And they did yeah. a, a tall eight and a half by eleven, beautifully printed, unique cover. So that was a bit odd, but because but I think partially it's just essential resources. They, they didn't have a lot of money, uh, even if you compare it with uh, the contemporary magazines of the period, like for example Northern Review. Uh, it was really uh, utilitarian in design. Yeah. Here and now, it's editorial exhorted Canadian right. publishers yeah. to produce beautiful books right. because we hadn't in the past, uh, or at least we hadn't no, you're experimented. Correct. There are examples, but there aren't a lot of fine press printing. Uh, there are examples. Jack McClelland, uh, when he um, uh, took a, really took over McClellan Stewart in, in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, produced a series called the Indian File series. I don't, you may have those in your collection. They do, yeah. Paul Arthur. Yeah, and the Klanick. And at the same time, William McConnell out in BC did the, um, the Klanick press books, yeah. which were quite nice. Stan Bevington 
um, after graduating from uh, the Ontario College of Art, uh, was a photographer, graphic designer, printer. Uh, he was also part of the revolution, you know, the, the pop revolution, frankly. Uh, I mean, he's a pop... The drugged-out pop revolution. Well, we, yeah, famously, they counter, did a counterfeit ticket with uh, for the Jimi Hendrix concert, I think in 68, with a, a purple haze drop on the tablet, uh, dropped onto the onto the ticket. So, they're, yes, they were part of Rochdale College. They were the printing press of the college. They printed the degrees. They printed Rochdale ephemera, money, and so on and so forth. That was the thrill about doing the 1976 exhibit. That was the 30-year... 1996? Yeah, 1996. Yeah, yeah, 1996. That was the 30th anniversary show. So, going back to the collecting, yeah. it really, the collecting of Coach House took precedence over everything. Just because it's so much fun, isn't it? So much fun, and as a collector, I realized at a certain point I had a critical mass. Yeah. So I said, well, I must keep going. I don't have a copy of Journeying Returns. I was aware of it. One came on the market, I bought it. I got a Completionist. Lovely... Yeah, completionist. And then there had been a period in time, particularly after the exhibit, in 96, where Open Letter did a special issue on Coach House. Um, there was a brief recognition of the ex- exhibition. Unfortunately, uh, Coach House Press, Stan and Victor Coleman uh, were at odds with the National Library. The National Library was at odds with me and Stan and Victor. Uh, they, <clears throat> Victor had written um, an essay in which he was going to be included in a beautiful catalog uh, that we had been planning and Stan was going to print it. But uh, they object, uh, the editors at the National Library objected to the uh, to Victor's essay and his disparagement of Margaret Atwood. <coughs> so they deep six the catalog and they produced this really crappy piece uh, documenting these. They were committed to a catalog, but mm. it was really, I wouldn't even call it utilitarian. So they, they met their commitment to documenting the exhibit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was at that time I was reveling in the archive and the books and the postcards. And I already... So the, that collection, in a way, mirrored that exhibition, rather, uh, began to take on aspects of my own coach's collection. And it wasn't until uh, I moved to Toronto in 77, 76, 77... And I mentioned this in the catalog in the introductory essay that um, I went to Paul Stewie's. I was working in the commercial book trade for classic books. The venerable Montreal book chain had opened up uh, stores in Toronto, and I worked at their one of their premier shops on uh, Bloor Street. I discovered Paul Stewie's. You know, Paul Stewie, literary critic and Canadianist. He was part of the Toronto literary scene at the time. He wrote a book, I forgot the title right off the top, but he was a bit of a crank, um, sort of like John Metcalf in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, excellence over mass production. Yeah. Um, and I discovered, I walked into the bookshop and I bought a couple of books. Paul Stewie had just a little up second floor bookshop, might have been called Paul Stewie's Bookshop or The Bookshop or something like that, uh, just off Spadina. And Harvard near uh, U of T uh, Robarts Library, and uh, I found David Adams Richards' uh, first novel, *Coming of Winter*. So that was exciting from Oberon Press. Mm-hmm. So there's a new imprint. 
publishing a uh, you know a cloth edition of a of a relatively unknown maritime writer. So I bought that. Printed by Portrait? Uh, yeah, that was yes. It was one of the printed one of the volumes. I think I think they did everything. I think so. Yeah. Um, and I also found the first fifteen issues of Tamarack magazine. Because I've been immersed in the '60s and the post '60s world of pop and drugs and sex and rock and roll and coach house and other exciting uh, small press activities that were going on in presses, especially you know across the country and so on. I found the Tamaracks, and that got me thinking. Well, maybe I should find more pet Tamaracks. I've got one to fifteen. They're eighty-two. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really when I started to expand the collection because I'd had a, my few issues of Alphabet, my Alphabet, uh, my Applegarsk Follies, uh, the growing Coach House collection, and I was now in Montreal. And Montreal, through bookstores like The Word, which is a unique shop in itself, became the purveyor of of a lot of the small press materials because this is what... Adrian King Edwards specializes in. But then I would travel back to London, Ontario, my hometown, and wherever I went, I went to a bookstore. I'd go to Halifax and I'd visit uh, John uh, Sutherland at uh, uh, Schooner. Schooner and buy mar maritime stuff. And by the end of the 80s, um, I was doing an MA uh, at Concordia and I met Professor Wayne Francis. Uh, and she said, well, uh, what are you interested in? I said, well, I collect Coach House books and little magazines. She said, well, that's interesting. Why don't you think about writing a history of the little magazine in Canada? I said, well, okay. Uh, this is the late 80s. Ken Norris had already completed his dissertation with Louis Dudak, and I said, well, when I don't think it's really appropriate for it. I mean, I know you don't necessarily agree with everything that Ken wrote, in the book. It, it is a book, is it? Yeah, it is a book. Do you know what it's called? Yeah, it's called The Little Magazine Canada, Ken Norris. Hmm. It's a good, it's a still who, who a good published that? Uh Was it Vehicle? No. Vehicle, I think, published it. Okay. Yeah, he was a Vehicle author. So that's when I embarked on the serious study of The Little Magazine in Canada. I had been interested in The Little Magazine as part of my study, modernist studies. I was a huge James Joyce fan. Yeah, let me just break in here yeah. with uh, with a little context. This is your uh, introduction to the catalog, where you say that uh, modernist writing was published in avant-garde literary reviews and little magazines for small-run, iconoclastic, non-commercial literary magazines that privileged experimental poetry and fiction. Uh, frustrated writers established small presses, which were rooted in typographic experiment. And that's what got you excited. You were saying this is oh, James yeah, Joyce yeah. and... Uh, yeah, well, the, the whole... Studying um, to understand Canadian modernism, you have to understand modernism. It's interesting that uh, Ulysses made its way into the United States via a little magazine. The uh, little magazine. The little magazine, and uh, I... Was talking a little bit earlier about my Gotham project, and uh, Francis Stelloff, the owner of the Gotham Book Mart, used to import the sheets and bind them in New York for sale because of uh, because of the fact that, because it was uh, censored in the U.S. and Canada up until uh, well up the forties. But yes, the whole notion of the little magazine and modernism um, 
becomes part of the Canadian story. And it really doesn't emerge uh, in earnest until 1940 when a preview and uh, the John Sutherland first statement emerge in, in, in this town. Yeah, Montreal. And uh, that really sets the tone for the, the, the rest of the century in many respects. And there are, the range of experimentation really doesn't emerge until the 60s. Uh, frankly, we talked a little bit about, earlier about that, but in terms of the physical object, the little magazine, and even uh, literature and small press materials, what we would call small press, there were a few small presses. And one of the first was the first statement press, which published, among other things, Irving Layton's first book, mm-hmm. Raymond Soster's first book, in, uh, after 1945. And the first statement press was, in fact, a physical letter press that uh, Irving Layton had acquired. And First Statement Press was down in Old Montreal. So they were evolving from the mimeograph into printing. And I think that the expectation was is that through the printing press, um, you could create beautiful objects. And certainly an individual like uh, James Rainey in London, Ontario, who was teaching at um, the West, at University of Western Ontario, when he started uh, his magazine Alphabet, it was with a letterpress. Now, there is a whole tradition, within the nomenclature of the world of definitions, small press can sometimes be mixed with private press. It can, but it, it's, it, there's quite an obvious but difference. There, and there's an obvious difference, especially in terms of the whole business of the mechanics of printing and, mm-hmm. and the ultimate object. In a way, I always, I've always believed that the first 10 years of the Coach House Press represented the, the merging of the ideals of the private press and the arts and crafts press with uh, literary experiment. Uh, there were a few West Coast publishers who did some interesting things, but generally, generally speaking, during that period of time, most little magazines were produced in economical, in a very economical fashion. Yeah, you can't Perfect really, bound and so on. Yeah. And you can't say that they're necessary. They're not beautiful, but they're they're there cool. Are, there they're, are some they're fun to look at. Yeah, they're, exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, the, the the perhaps the the uh, the most interesting one of the lot is the Coach House, the Ants Forefoot, which was a tall mag. Later um, continued in a mag that ran for about five six years called Ramparts, which was pretty interesting mm-hmm. in a tall format. Bill Bissett did assemblages through blue, his Blue Ointment Press. And of course, B.P. Nickel, <laughs> you know, he was the master of the micro press. He inspired a generation of uh, young Toronto printers and, and poets and, and publishers in the 90s. And that's where the definition of the micro press goes. So just back to this notion of the construction of the collection. So the Primo collection was the Coach House Press initially. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, as I was, look, they were cheap. Coach House books can be expensive. Now uh, they can, yeah. They can. Be. Some of them, yeah. And even then, you know, like a, a journeying and the returns, a first edition complete, it had to have the, it had to have the 45 RPM recording in it and the flip book. Uh, I, frankly, I paid 600 bucks for that around 1995. So within the Canadian market, Coach House books are, are expensive. Um, well, they're, obviously, they're not all uh, expensive. Not all. There's quite a few you can get for 20, Oh, yes, yes, absolutely, bucks. yeah. So the, the Primo first generation were difficult to find, but they're findable. They're not rare. Sorry, I was gonna, I'm just going to yeah. uh, butt in here and say, in your introduction, you say, 
What was I really going to collect? Everything is futile and expensive. I think most collectors from experience know that. It's like you, you get so excited about collecting, but you don't really know how to refine your, your efforts. When I was a student in the Integrated Studies Program at Waterloo, I met several instructors who um, guided me in my, in my reading. Uh, the notion of the Integrated Studies Program was that you did whatever you want, you didn't have to take classes, and you'd end up with a degree at the end of four years. Mm. I liked that. I, all I had to do was read and meet with a tutor once a month, report on my readings, and I'd leave and do more readings. But at this particular point, I discovered uh, through Jameson that... Mac Jameson. Mac Jameson. Yeah. Tell me a bit about him. Mac was a uh, born in Woodstock, Ontario. He was doing a PhD in philosophy at Western. Um, he had ambitions of being a publisher, but he was also a chronic book collector. He and his wife, Jill Robinson. James Rainey was ready to retire the influential alphabet magazine and press. They acquired the press and they uh, started out with a new vision at the beginning of the 1970s. Uh, you may recall at the beginning of the 70s, the Canadian government made a lot of money available through various youth programs to support yeah. presses, start presses. Uh, Mac created, uh, Jill carried on the alphabet tradition in a different way no longer abandoning the abandoning the uh, letterpress for a offset press to produce a new magazine called Applegar's Follies, uh, still regional in nature, with ambitions to publish uh, local authors, and they eventually did this. They published about twelve books. Now, how years. did he influence you? Well, he influenced me partially by introducing me to the world of the small press and the production and printing of little magazines and chapbooks. But he also, as I mentioned earlier, had a house full of books. And clearly, <clears throat> I had some form of a gene that waited for this moment to walk into an individual's home in which every room, including the bathroom, had books. Every wall was covered. And he introduced me to the world of book collecting, the world of books themselves, because we talked about authors and philosophy. And he also, by the way, introduced me to the world of jazz. Uh, so uh, we'd sit around and listen to Lester Young and talk about books and plans and so on and so forth for the press. And then um, we, we went our separate ways for a number of years. But it was really that moment of realizing that you could fill your house full of books. It yeah. sounds a bit weird, but... Um, I'd already started to buy books, and I had already started to collect books in a way, amassing them at that point. At Waterloo, I had this notion of buy, you know, going to a bookstore, buy what, literature. It was going to be a renaissance, 18th century, 19th century, 20th century collection. At this particular time, I'm not thinking about first editions per se. Just a kind of a comprehensive library academic of the best library. thoughts thought. Perhaps. Exactly. An yeah. academic library, you know, based on academic publishers, indulging in remainders, buying art books, focusing a little bit, as I said, buying Coach House books and New Directions books yeah. through, uh, through bookstores, through special orders and so on and so forth. So uh, it really wasn't until the end of that decade 
after acquiring the Tamaracks and the David Adams Richards and realizing that my Coach House collection was growing, that I began to focus on that, although I was still expanding the library in general. But what triggered the real focus was when I moved to Montreal, introduced to the Weird Bookstore, started to see all this wonderful material that had been published, realizing that it wasn't that expensive at the particular time. And then later meeting Wynne Francis, and when I met Wynne, she, it sort of was that moment. Well, what are you? What do you do? Well, and here's how you put it. I would focus my collecting and research interests on the origins of literary modernism in Canada in the pages of little magazines and small press publications. I would refocus my limited resources in an attempt to document the history of literary experiment in Canada. So that's the focus. That's the focus at that particular time. I could have gone in the direction of Joyce, possibly, and done done an MA thesis on Joyce, uh, perhaps on other aspects of modernism, a publishing. Uh, I could have done a study, I suppose, of the uh, writings and imprints of William Carlos Williams, among others. But you know what's neat about Canada is that you can be a pioneer here. Yeah. Whereas the yeah. other ground is fairly well tilled. Well, and you can also you also see the influence, and this big, this emerged later, uh, particularly with the uh, acquisition of uh, Mike. I uh, developed within the little magazines a collection based on the Tisch magazine published at UBC. I managed to find a uh, complete run. Tisch was probably the most controversial magazine ever printed in Canada, literary magazine. Ironically, Frank Davey, one of the founding editors of Tisch, ended up here at ended up at Western University of Western Ontario as the Carl Clank Professor of Canadian Literature. So he was a rebel in his youth and. Uh, you know, it's the old story. Yeah. So, uh, the, the, after having amassed a large collection of Coach House books, yeah, and they were cheap, uh, you could, I thought it would be good to have a collection of comparative imprints produced by Coach House contemporaries. Wherever I went, I would pick up inexpensive, <laughs> very inexpensive uh, runs of small press imprints. You also, and this was listening to excellent advice given by Jack David, yes, the co-founder of ECW yes. Press, and he student suggested that you focus also or include uh, student literary magazines in your collection of little magazines. Which I did, and that's um, uh, how I acquired, among other things, uh, the, the run of Tish, yeah. uh, which was a student UBC publication. Uh, I had a complete run of waves from uh, York University. Interestingly enough, in that little section there, I, don't, I didn't see reference to the Raven, UBC's. Uh, there, I do have, well, there was, there was limited space in the introduction. Sure. I do have Ravens in the collection. Okay. A very lovely uh, Robert Reed produced edition. I've got that one too. And number seven. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, yes, some Ravens. Littering of uh, the the edge, not the edge. What was the uh, sorry, the, um, the forge? McGill's McGill's uh, little magazine. Okay. So wherever uh, wherever, and I worked over in the library here. So uh, I collected the student output that would appear wherever I went or saw advertised. I would buy student little magazines. Hmm. But the prize was the Tish magazine. Okay. I was very fortunate to acquire us a, a run. A complete run at a very decent price. How did you get that? Um, I found it in a catalog 
in um, the late 90s, uh, William Reese, bookseller out of Connecticut. Yeah, uh, sadly late, he died not that The late ago. William Reese. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, the story, the story continues. Uh, I don't know whether you know his, um, Terry, uh, I, I forgot Terry's last name, but anyway, one of his, uh, one, one of the key members of the, of the Reese staff produced in the late 90s a two-volume catalog focused on little magazines. In the first volume, I discovered a complete run of a little magazine that was produced by First Statement Press in 1948 called Index. And the last time I'd seen Index at that point was the Concordia copy, which was, I think, in the Ralph Gustafson collection, and it was literally falling apart. It was crumbling. It was... Uh, uh, it had not been preserved very well. And it was an important magazine because it was a literary review. It's not publishing creative writing. It's publishing reviews of other writing. And so you are able to get a chart, the sense of the intellectual activities of the day, uh, current thoughts by Canadian writers about other writers. And uh, it was James Laughlin's copy. So I said, I've, there's Index, i got to get that. And then I went through and there was... Uh, Fred Waugh's son, that was produced, I think, three issues while he was at Buffalo. And that connects him to Robert Creeley and um, the Tisch scene. I mean, he was part of the Tisch scene as well. Mm -hmm. So the West Coast poetry scene, the avant-garde scene, of the influence of Charles Olson and objectivism and so on. And that's the other dimension of studying these magazines are the literary movies that sometimes inspire them. So then I go to the T's, and there was a complete amount of Tisch for $800. Pristine. Half of the issues were uh, addressed to Allen Ginsberg, and the other half were addressed to the 8th Street Bookshop. So, what provenance? Yeah. What provenance, especially the Ginsberg? The Ginsberg now, published a book through Coach House, didn't yeah, it? The yeah, the Iron Horse. Yeah. Iron Horse. It cost me $800 US. Wow. In Canada, that would have been a $2,000 purchase. Wow. So, That's serious collecting back then for a well, young man. Well, it was. For it a was young for, man. For a young man. For my, well, <laughs> thank God, for, as I've said elsewhere, thank God for credit cards. <laughs> thank God for credit cards. Yeah. So that was an important acquisition. But I would also say that over that period of time, booksellers become, and I think I mentioned this in the, the catalog, part of collecting is getting to know book collectors. I mean, uh, well, other collectors. Or course, dealers, too. And yeah. book dealers. And I was very fortunate across the country to have very supportive book dealers who knew what I was collecting, particularly with the Coach House. After, you probably know about the story of 96, when the Coach House was after a, an interregnum period. The Coach House broke up around, what, 1990. And it was acquired. The imprint changed the, the iconographic spin it, you know, wheel of the press disappears and there's a new logo and a new uh, call font. And a new focus, obviously. And a new they, focus. Wanted, they wanted to make money. They wanted to make money, and, and but it didn't work out. Yeah. But I was able to acquire some great Coach House, original Coach House materials through Annex Books and Tron, Janet Featherling, or Janet Hanks, et cetera, she now... And, she's still uh, alive. Yeah, she's still alive. She Mexico. She lives in much of her spends much of her time in Mexico, actually, with her second husband. Mm. But she had acquired a lot of great coach house material, postcards, posters, odds and ball, odds and sods, which I was able to add to my collection. So I was very pleased about that. So Who else? What other book dealers? Well, certainly Adrian was very important. 
um, John uh, Sutherland in the West Coast. And I used to deal regularly with UBC, Bill Hoffer. Bill Hoffer was important. He published a bit too, didn't he? He did publish a bit, yeah, he with the John, uh, John Metcalf, the Tank series. So they did some cool things. And Hoffer, uh, Hoffer's catalogs alone are worth, uh, worth their weight in gold for his uh, sardonic comments about Canadian writing. Uh, a couple of dealers in, Cal- in Calgary as well who were important. But it was also actively subscribing and contacting the publishers and the magazine editors. Yeah, because a lot of them have a backlist, right? <laughs> they have backlists. Or I, and I was combing through, uh, at that particular time, in addition to collecting little magazines, I was collecting like the Poetry Toronto. So newsletters, anything that had a newsletter out of Ottawa, several dealers as well. But it was really through this network of book dealers, publishers, editors... That there were a couple of collectors, not very many, but some, even someone like Nikki Jambolos uh, in Toronto, who's now in Thunder Bay, of course. We had a correspondence. Um, I got to know uh, J.W. Curry, whose um, 304 books in Toronto was very important. He's in Ottawa. He's he? in Ottawa now, Industrial Sabotage. I have a complete, I donated a complete run of Industrial Sabotage. I was getting a lot of ephemera from him. It, it was really a matter of building this rather elaborate network of dealers, publishers, in terms of being able to amass the collection. And Letting also, them know, and so you had yeah, not just your eyes looking, but all... Yeah, I had, at, one point I had, at one point I had probably had 30 or 40 subscriptions. Right, yeah. and, and I going through issues of things like Poetry Toronto... New listings of magazines. I always went for the new listings. Mm-hmm. You know, I was always looking, searching retrospectively. Well, the, you you really wanted to be comprehensive, didn't absolutely. you? Absolutely, that was the your goal. your goal was basically to get examples of every, if not a complete run of everything that had been published. What with the modernist bent in yeah, the country since, from since uh, the earliest piece in the collection dates from. Um, 1929, I acquired it from Nikki Drimboli. The Privateer, published at U of T and includes Dorothy Livesay's first poem, mm-hmm. printed poem. But what Nikki said was, well, I don't really do periodicals. A lot of book dealers didn't do periodicals. Adrian King Edwards was unique in that way because they were a nuisance for yeah. many book dealers. Yeah. You, know, you can't really get that much for them and they take up space. Right, they take up space and uh, you might have three issues of one mag and two of another. So their notion of being completist was sort of, um, was not on their radar. But nevertheless, uh, wherever I traveled, I would go to a bookstore and even visiting uh, my my mother-in-law and uh, and father-in-law in in Sudbury, Ontario, Mm -hmm. I'd go to Wolf's Bookshop and see what I could find. And I occasionally found a treasure. Uh, The Black Cat Bookshop, uh, gone now. Uh, So it was a combination of retrospective buying through dealer catalogs one of the other most important and I, I reference him in my acknowledgments uh was nelson ball who is in uh, paris ontario yeah that's an amazing house he's got there uh when i went to growing up in london i would go back to london quite often <clears throat> to see my family my parents <clears throat> and uh when i was living in montreal particularly and i would always stop in in, in paris and well the first time i walked into the into the periodical vault you know, I almost fainted because there it was. It was, you know, an orgasm of sorts, I suppose, a bibliographic orgasm yeah. to be in a room full of 
all these wonderful periodicals mm -hmm. and they were all for sale and I could go through them systematically. I bought well, a there's lot. so many of them too because they're yeah. like, you can get so many of them on a shelf. Absolutely. Yeah. And I read that shelf, all the shelves, and I always leave with boxes of material. Mm -hmm. But the other invaluable thing about Nelson's shop was that over during the 60s when he was actively Volume 63, when he was at Waterloo, he did Hyphid, he did Wheat Flower. Um, he was a consummate uh, typist, mimeograph artist in many respects. And he was married to the um, conceptual artist, uh, Barbara Caruso. Whose work appears on the covers. Absolutely. Of yeah. And uh, who did her own. They had a separate press called Seri Press. I don't know whether you're familiar with Seri. Yeah. I acquired some very nice Seri, Seri Press materials. Mm -hmm. But um, Nelson in the um, invaluably um, produced in the 70s Canadian literary magazine catalogs. So they become archival resources of great importance. They're all out at Alberta now. So one of the things that happened, and I mentioned this, is when I met Wynne Francis, she said, well, look, uh, why don't you work as my research assistant? Um, I have a large archive in my home in West Montreal, and um, I'd like you to catalog it. So I said, great, okay, that sounds fantastic. And I went, I, I lived down in, on the cusp of NDG and, uh, and near the Vendôme Metro. And it was an easy hike out to West Montreal, and uh, I went there for the first couple. I went there for the first Saturday, and I was my it was mind-boggling. Rows of little magazines and small press materials and <clears throat> uh, magazine boxes with labeled with an incredible array of publications, coaches materials, Seri Press. So on and so forth. It was it was a, an amazing archive. I wonder how she got all of that. Well, Did she subscribed or what? she was when uh, got a job teaching literature at uh, Sir George Williams College in 1940. She was the only woman on faculty, and uh, she was a bit of a hipster in her own way, and uh, she got to know because of her interest in Canadian poetry, uh, she befriended F. R. Scott. John Sutherland, Irving Lake, she knew all, or Duke Jack, she knew all these folks. And she died in 2000. In fact, you, uh, you, you dedicate the collection to her. I did uh, dedicate it in her honor for the principal reason of her inspiring me to go on and do that. Mm -hmm. But also because there is a chunk of the collection or a portion of the collection which, which I acquired through after her death. She bequeathed. Uh, her archive to me. And that included some runs of magazines, some small press material, and archival material. And this is why I refer to in the catalog the imprint archive, because she corresponded with a number of writers during the 60s. There's great correspondence. She corresponded with George Woodcock, who founded Canadian Literature. On the West Coast. Yeah. On the West Coast. She corresponded with Dorothy Livesay and others. Uh, she corresponded with publishers and small press editors and so on. So it provides an archival dimension to the collection, in addition to my own archive, which uh, included a lot of correspondence with booksellers and editors mm -hmm. and historians and scholars. So uh, it makes for a good archive. And then in addition to that, I collected ephemera, poetry reading, 
Uh, I managed a, a poetry at lunch series at McGill when I was here for five or six years. We did a poster. Poster. What, what year was that? Uh, we did that in the nineties. Okay, so that's yeah. post Robert Reed being here. Oh yes, yeah, quite long, a bit. Long quite after a bit that. Post. Long yeah. after that. Because yeah. you know he did some fantastic posters for McGill. Oh yeah, and they're all, fortunately we have the archive here. That's so right. It's amazing, and I know yeah. that they celebrated his um, what his centenary Nin- his 90th birthday 90th birthday yes last year doing amazing things with his archive he was a master printer there's he, no question I was just going to finish with this I asked Wynn I said Wynn you know I, know I know a little bit about little magazines in Canada and I've read all your articles and stuff because she was one of the pioneers in terms of writing about little magazines and small press in those early issues of Canadian literature and they still stand as important benchmarks and uh, signposts for anyone who's studying the subject. I said, when, where are all your uh, Northern reviews? Where are your previews and first statements? She said, well, I got rid of them back in the 50s. We were moving. I didn't think they were important at the time. Uh, I had them all because they were giving them to me. I said, well, that's unfortunate. And at that point... <laughs> In uh, 88 or so, I said, okay, well, I've got to really get serious now. If I'm going to do a descriptive bibliography of Canadian little magazines published since 1920, then I need to have a physical copy in my own possession. And that's really when the collecting focused. Now, I've always been all over the map anyway, but in terms of focusing on Canadian literature, uh, I have a collection on Paris, I have a collection of... New Directions books I have. I still have a very large collection of uh, Canadian literature. First yeah, you, you sound... Uh, I, I can relate to this completely because I think anyone who's a collector, you can't just have one collection. I've got a ton of... Almost every couple of months I come up with some thought, wouldn't it be great? And, I yeah. do, and you do act on it too. Absolutely. But let me just uh, read out here. Now this is, uh, this is again from the, uh, the catalogue. This exhibition reveals the impact of the small press movement in Canadian publishing. Not only did small presses provide a myriad of opportunities for writers to express their creative visions, but they also introduced a variety of new publishing formats. These formats transformed the traditional appearance of books and magazines into a kaleidoscopic expression of the Canadian poetic imagination during the latter half of the 20th century. Up until about, there, there are hints of this in the 1950s, especially with, and I, I think I mentioned this as well, that in 1950, Louis Dudek writes, Where are the young? Où sont les jeunes? And really in the 50s, you begin to see the emergence of a new generation of Canadian poets. Phyllis Webb is beginning to make an appearance and an impact. Uh, Eli Mandel, Gail Turnbull makes an appearance from Britain. He's here. Leonard Cohen graduates from uh, McGill in 1956, publishing Let Us Compare Mythologies. In my view, Canadian literature really doesn't take off. Modern Canadian literature does not take off until the 1960s. There's hints of it in the 50s. Uh, Contact magazine uh, edited by Raymond Souster. And Contact Press, of course. And Contact Press. Contact Press was focused on publishing young Canadian writers. And uh, the, fi- the last book or item to be published by Contact was New Wave Canada, which was printed at the Coach House Press. 
And there was this transition from contact to... There was, yeah. In fact, I asked Stan Bevington about that specifically, uh -huh. and he didn't really bite on it. He wasn't... I mean, a lot of people try and say that they sort of took up the the baton from uh, contact, but and there were some <coughs> overlaps, but he yeah. wasn't he wasn't that keen to to go there. I don't think. I think um, well, that's certainly fair enough for Stan's perspective. I think if you look at Victor Coleman's role in the project, uh, I think he saw it a little differently. Now, one can overstate it perhaps, and it may be prosaic, but I think it was a reality that v Raymond Souster was imagining that Victor Coleman, his his protege was going to take over the mantle and perhaps it would be the coach house press that would be its own vehicle yeah victor himself published um island magazine which originally started out as eyes is mm. uh and then evolved into island and well, he and he printed some of those you know some pretty sophisticated issues that were produced at the coach house press so he was using the press and that was the notion of i think why ken or i should say stan might not like that on that is because in part when he conceived the coach house press it was conceived as a community press for local artists and photographers yeah, yeah. whereas contact really was a way for Leighton and Souster and Dudek and Dudek to, to get published themselves themselves because I know Leighton particularly was he was concerned that he wasn't getting published by McClellan and Stewart and the, and the big boys he eventually, he would. Um, Beautifully, too. John, but this would, was a was way make, for them to get to exactly. basically say, here we are, if right. you're not going to publish That's us, right. screw you, yeah. we're going to set up our own thing. That's right. And and uh, there were spinoffs. You know, again, this goes back to this notion of one of the threads that runs through this whole discussion is the notion of regionalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, geographically, uh, it's a legitimate scholarly study. Certainly within the cultural realm, um, given the nature of the country. Yeah, there was a scene in Halifax and a scene in St. John. Montreal had been a literary scene f since, I said, well, for, for over 100 years. But in terms of modernism, uh, the spark here is the McGill Fortnightly Review. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is impossible to find. McGill has an institutional copy. They've microfilmed it and it's available online. The other is uh, the 19... Uh, 2930 spinoff, which was called the Canadian Mercury. Yeah. And the Mercury was very important. F.R. Scott, um, after the McGill, Knight Fortley, McGill Fortnightly Review gang broke up, some going to Paris, some going to Berlin and Scotland, F.R. Scott remained, and he and a couple of other his cronies, including... Um, Leo Kennedy founded the Canadian Mercury. So how, right, that, how long did that last for? It lasted for four issues. Oh, okay. uh, seven issues, pardon me. Okay. Seven issues. Right. And you've got a run of that. No, it's impossible to find. Uh, you have to go to institutions. The, the, the odd one may crop up. If it did, I'd go after it now, certainly to add to the collection. They're institutional collections. They're in institutional collections. Why, that's why getting these things into, things into institutions is very important. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to go, go off track too much here, but one of the things that is lacking in Canada, and again, we were critical of the National Library, but that's a kind of organization that needs to foster collectors in the country and, and celebrate and promote, and yeah. there's just none of that. And collectors are, and you make reference to it somewhere in the catalog, 
about how, you know, they're the ones that are going out and getting a lot of this raw material for the scholars, and you need to cultivate that ecosystem. We can have a separate discussion about this. Yeah, um, I just want to put it on the record, though. Uh, it is a, it's a concern, and it's been a concern for probably 25 years. Mm -hmm. uh, from the trades perspective, who are the up-and-coming young book dealers? A book, it's an, you're right, it's an ecosystem. The bookseller needs consumers, customers, institutional and individual. You know, one of the things that upsets me as a collector, though, is that booksellers have scoured all the bookstores out there and yeah. taken all the good stuff out, yeah. and they'll, they'll sell those at book fairs so that us poor collectors go into all these bookstores and there's dick all for us to... to, to uh, <clears throat> yeah. The bag. Well, I don't disagree with that. Um, I think the crux now is, I think that there's always going to be a supply chain for the objects. Uh, and of course, the whole other debate has, that has been going on for years um, is the role of the internet. Maybe, yes, and you know what? It can be fun on the internet because you can find a lot of stuff there that the, that the sellers don't know what they've got. And although they might be overpricing it to start with, if they can't move it for years at a time, they will bring their price down. And there's eBay. We uh, institutionally we shop on eBay. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You never know what you're going to find. Yeah, yeah, and it can be very exciting. Yeah, uh, we're also dealing with a generation of you know. Let's speak of millennials. Uh, there has to be some kind of a connection to the book. I reference my grandfather in 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 the catalog. Mm. Or I did in one of versions of, of of a text I wrote because when I was uh, you know ten years old, um, I had a model. My grandfather, who was a Brit, would wear his tea jacket on Sundays and smoke his pipe and read books. And uh, lo and behold, I have a, his copy of uh, of a Robert Frost volume that my aunt gave to her to my grandfather for Christmas mm. one year, and I cherish that as a kind of totem of his interest in the book. He legitimized it, having a book, because I grew up in a wasp family, and uh, you know you weren't supposed to read on Sundays, and if you were caught reading, you were yelled at, and so on and so forth. So uh, it's this notion of the temptation, right? If you're saying no, I'm saying how. <laughs> how can I get access to that? So that was a seed that was planted many years ago, but I think you know, collecting art, or collecting rare books, uh, or even just acquiring books, is a different challenge, despite the fact that it looks like independent bookstores are thriving again, and Amazon is making its gazillions every year, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Indigo is still apparently down the road here, and uh, Paragraph, and I was surprised to see even the locally Ulysses Travel Bookshop still surviving. And even um, Mr. George's shop down on... Uh, I don't know whether you're a regular of uh, Mr. George and on uh, St. Catherine Street uh, West. He was one of the consummate booksellers here in town in the 80s. There's someone to talk about it another time, perhaps. He's still here? No, he died several years ago. Okay. Let's uh, just jump back into the catalog. I was very happy to see that you included Ken, speaking of Ken Norris, Ken Norris's Vegetables poems that uh, Vehicle published in 1976, where they've actually got the pack of seeds on the, I've got I've got one of those uh, somewhere but uh, I, I just love that <laughs> I talked a little bit about my wife 
yeah. earlier. That was her favorite piece in the entire collection. <laughs> she said, are you giving that to Alberta? I said, well, yeah, it's part of the collection. She said, that's my favorite book. <laughs> well, it was charming, but it was part of the... And, you know, that goes back to some of our earlier discussion about Kochas vis-a-vis contact and Stan's perspective on what the purpose of the Kochas press was. And it wasn't necessarily the, the bridge between contact and the future. But, you know, Montreal had its own, during the 60s, Montreal's, again, this is one of the beauty of the little magazine, is that you can chart the local literary scene in, in many ways through the little magazines. And, you know, Montreal's well represented, particularly in the 60s. Mm. But it really isn't until the vehicle press uh, gets going in this mid-70s that you begin to see a kind of new energy in the scene. I mean, they did have three giants or four giants looming over them. And they were still alive at the time. F.R. Scott, Dudek, Leighton, of course. And then in, in the background is Cohen. Hugh McLennan's still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that he had any direct impact on modernism, per se, and the modernist model. Although in his uh, first two novels that he wrote, which were unpublished, he actually set them in Europe. And they are, in, in uh, his first uh, unpublished novel, he actually experimented with a stream of consciousness. So he was like his gener- that generation, you're experimenting. Um, but he had a- other ambitions and went elsewhere. But, you know, Vehicle Press got things going. George Bowring was here at the late, in the late 80s, uh, 60s rather. He was here in the late 60s teaching at Concordia mm-hmm. as a visiting writer. And he had an influence. So he's bringing the West Coast influence into town mm-hmm. and uh, so on and so forth. He published several. He started his little magazine, Imago, here. So the mags are a way of taking the temperature and assessing what's going on at any given particular time, especially in a city like Montreal. Mm-hmm. But Vehicle emerged as a gallery space. It's a literary imprint. So just to weave back to your question about Coach House and the small press, the small press collection and the micro presses, I, I focused on those as a comparison to what the Coach House was doing. If I was making the claim that the Coach House is the most importance literary press in Canada in the uh, post-60s. They're still around and they're still winning awards. The books are less interesting perhaps in terms of their design, but they'd already moved into that perfect bound model in the 70s. So Mm -hmm. it's nothing new. Literary magazines went through the same uh, evolution. Uh, Initially you might get a mimeograph, but soon enough they were perfect bound. So I collected vehicle and I collected as again representative examples yeah. to compare with coaches. Well, you know what's interesting is first of all most and a lot of it is poetry most poetry is no good 95% of it is no good what I think is so interesting is the look and the format yeah. which is what you focused on most of this stuff is not really that good I would suggest but then again that's not the criticism of, of what they published that's just the case with all literature uh, but I think you focused on something and, and I love it too that really is fascinating and that really is I don't say I don't want to say first rate but it's, it's especially coach house it, it's just so creative and fun and I think you valuable could, I I, I... I agree with you wholeheartedly about the notion of, uh, often the question is, well, what, what is the value of 
Lolo magazine in particular. Uh, I think it's it's not a question of, as you're right, it's not a, the individual moment. It's the critical mass. It's the story, the narrative of the, the format and the genre over a period of time. Now, there, there are different schools of study. Uh, in Canada, there is a uh, society dedicated to the study of the Victorian periodical. There are scholarly periodicals that focus on uh, periodical publishing and, and journal publishing and scholarly publishing and periodicals of the 18th century and so on. When I first got involved in the Canadian game, Canadian's game, after I met Wynne in a serious way, going back in time, you know, you went back to the Quebec Gazette that was published in the 1790s. You know, the history of the magazine in Canada and its evolution. Because it's not, the little magazine in terms of literature and art is one small dimension of a multi-dimensional uh, industry that has been active for a couple hundred years. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not even talking about commercial magazines. That may have included literature, excuse me, mm -hmm. <coughs> pardon me, um, that included short stories. I mean, that's a whole other story. Uh, commercial magazines and literature and the publication of authors and promoting authors. Um, Weekend magazine always had a short story, for example. So this is not unusual. It's really with a focus on individuals who are energized to print their own stuff. Right. Because a non-commercial publisher or magazine says no, and where once or a commercial time, magazine says a com no. yeah, a commercial magazine, I meant. And of course, there are fewer and fewer of them on <laughs> the market now. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, there were Saturday Night and a whole range of, of publications. Mm -hmm. uh, newspapers would have a weekend section where there might be something on literature. I have a, uh, one of the beauties of the Win Francis uh, archive is the clipping collection, clippings of newspaper articles from the star and talking about literature and actively talking about the poetry scene in, in any given city. But it is, it's interesting, it is a, a function of technology in a sense because it was became easier for individuals to produce this stuff. Absolutely. Well, if you look at, if you compare uh, the, the newsprint uh, versions of, let's say, McGill Fortnightly Review to the printed issues of, let's say, the Canadian Mercury, they, they could sit on a, a magazine stand very well. As exam early examples of commercially printed literary content by, shall we say, modernist-inspired writers. But with Preview and Northern Review, they are mimeograph magazines. Yeah. And they start out as mimeos. And that gets them into that whole 40s mimeo revolution spirit. I had I managed to acquire a nice little run of um, Harold Horwood's Newfoundland magazine called Protocol. Uh, they produced seven issues. I had six, including notably number one. They were printed in Newfoundland. They weren't handmade, so to speak. They were not mimeographed. They weren't stenciled and mimeographed. It was offset. So printing. these offset printing. So mm -hmm. there are different models, but offset becomes inexpensive. Yeah, mimeography. Uh, is inexpensive. For someone like Bill Bissett in the 60s, creating a mimeograph assemblage of Blue Ointment magazine uh, was both, you know, cut-ups and cut-outs and all kinds of crazy things were going on. So that becomes an art form in itself. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Ant's Forefoot, later printed by the late 60s by Kochos, is just an eloquent example of pushing the envelope. And sometimes magazines were enveloped. I've got examples of stuffed envelopes that were kind of cool. What about uh, Quebecois magazines? Well, you know the problem in Canada is that on the one hand you can live in an Anglophone bubble and you can live in a Francophone bubble or maybe you can live in a middle bubble, I'm not sure. But it seemed to me if I was going to call this Canadian literary magazine collection, I had to include Francophone magazines. I had magazines published here in Montreal and certainly Matrix from uh, Lennoxville where uh, Bishops and other examples of Anglophone mags. So uh, one day I was uh, on Saint Laurent visiting um, Giacomo Falcone who ran Giacomo Falcone books. He's, his, he moved his business to Stansted years ago but in those days he had a, a studio on Saint Laurent at Prince Arthur. One day I walked in and I saw this elegant collection of a uh, complete run of a magazine published in the mid-40s uh, by Fides called Gant de Ciel, mm-hmm. which was a, a, a title that they took from Cocteau, Jean Cocteau. And that was really my first foray into buying um, retrospectively, an important run of Francophone magazines. And from there, from the 50s, there was Liberté, and I amassed a complete set of a run of Liberté. In the 60s, Belle de Jour, the um, more revolutionary, you know, because we have, we're in the midst of the Quebecois Revolution, the beginnings of the revolution, Parti Pris, the political mag, I had issues of that. And what about Emery? Uh, Emery, yeah, Emery was... Uh, Gilles Vignon. <clears throat> I had, you know, there were only several issues of that, but I managed to find those. So that took me into the Francophone book dealer's world. Yeah. Was it harder to find the French stuff than it was to find the English stuff, or was it easier? Well, again, the same business model. They're not... A complete run of Emery was, uh, I should say, Gant de Ciel was uh, probably an unusual moment. Uh, what do you mean? Well, in the sense of a book dealer actually putting out on the shelf this collection. I think he had it actually under glass. I said, I like that. Okay. And yeah, then it was just good fortune that you good happened, fortune to, you happened yeah, to have okay. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Richard Gingras, who ran a bookshop in the Chercheur de Trésor, a bookshop in East Montreal, in the late 90s published a oddball little magazine called Stay Caché. I don't know whether you've seen this or not. Worth looking for. So there was a Richard. Why is it worth looking for? uh, Because it's, again, a a register of what was going on in terms of uh, avant-garde poetry publishing in Quebec, particularly Montreal, from the Francophone's perspective. Yeah. Um, I bought college mags. Was the art different, better, same? Expressions of, I think what I would say is, in terms of production, they were often published by publishers. They were sort of a publisher. Yeah, yeah. Certainly Fides and so on. Colleges were, college magazines I collected. Um, There was a great uh, Lettre Québécois. Again, going back to the foundation of the collections, uh, Liberté was an important register of aesthetic and political thinking going on. 
uh, Letzor Quebecois, which came a little later. I don't know whether you're familiar with Letzor Quebecois. Mm -hmm. He was active for about 10 years. Um, and it was a literary digest of uh, literary life in Quebec, mm -hmm. covering commercial publishers, poetry publishing, and so on and so forth. What about Cité Libre? Cité Libre. I had issues of Cité Libre. It was very important. I, uh, the original run, and then I bought copies of the reissued Cité Libre from about 10, 15 years ago, maybe longer, 20 years ago. Uh, so yes, documenting cult cultural, period uh, cultural periodicals as well yeah. uh, were part of this mm -hmm. uh, collection as well, because it sort of expanded out in, to include, I had a complete run of books in Canada. Uh, why, mm. why is it important? Um, because Books in Canada was reviewing small press titles in the issues you would find small press advertisements. So if you're doing bibliographic work and you're charting what's being published, because some of this material doesn't make its way into the National Library, the National Library being a copyright library, mm -hmm. you have to send two copies yeah. of your book or your magazine if you want to get copyright. Uh, not everyone subscribed to that. And so, you know, there are, you can't just go into uh, Amicus the, the online catalog and necessarily find particular titles because they were never either acquired or were they copyright cop titles. So there, there's the whole bibliographic enterprise, which is to, as best as possible, document what was published. And that was one of the underlying premises of my whole project. Collecting to provide a physical example for a intended bibliography. Just in closing, um, you know, as a collector, the, the big part of it is the hunt, you know, the yeah. fun of finding a physical object. But once you've sort of gotten to a critical mass, I think every collector would love to have an institution take their collection. Yeah. Because they think it's valuable. And yet mm. there doesn't seem... it's. Maybe you could just comment on the difficulty of doing that and what the collector should do, especially in Canada. If I had not been able to secure an institution to acquire the collection, I would have contacted Adrian King Edwards at the Word Bookshop in Montreal and said, Adrian, I have some really nice pieces I would like to sell because as a professional I'm going to say well he probably won't be interested in issue number one of such but if I said I have a complete run of Tish that was uh, once belonged to Allen Ginsberg and the 8th Street Bookshop are you interested? I might have gone that route. I could have gone auction route perhaps given the nature of the collection. What about the, and again that, um, I, I was just closing down here but uh... The collector making the case, coming up with the stories for each book, and then making the case for their collection in a in yeah. a small little catalog. Uh, that's fun too. And, and as I say, when I first when I started off this conversation with you, I was a bit surprised that you hadn't presented any thoughts about all this material that you pulled together. But you you don't really. It's, here's the material, let the scholars do the work. I mean, but I mean, I'm saying if, you did, if, if the collector does a bit of thinking about it and puts that down and sells their collection because of 
these particular points. Oh, well, that might help them do something with it. Uh, well, just in terms of, uh, of, the, of my collection, I drafted a uh, six-pager or seven-pager for, for, for Merrill, describing the collection. And this is the person that acquired yeah, it. acquired it. But my presumption, I mean, there was such a massive material. To be honest, the other aspect of this is that I really had felt that I'd completed the collection, uh, that intellectually I was no longer interested in the subject. You, you, you move out of the country for 10 years. Yeah. And no, your, but, uh, your interest uh, shifts and so on. No, so, true enough. But uh, as I say, you must have had some thoughts about what you what you put together. Oh, of course, and I still do. And I know that the collection... Uh, and I'm hoping to get back out to Alberta to work on aspects of the collection. Mm. And I have a project based on the Canadian Mercury itself uh, that I mentioned before. Um, and the McGill Group. Um, I'm working on a, on a, on a, on a book about that uh, period, the 20, from 20, 1927 to 1932. But do you have, just uh, to, to finish off... Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about this collection? Like, not the fact that it's valuable; it is obviously. Mm -hmm. But what did you see? Did you see anything that was interesting? When I first started to collect Canadian little magazines, in particular, the Coaches Press, for me, from a book collector's perspective, what I was trying to do was capture through the Coaches books the spirit of the age, to use that phrase. I was a student, uh, I, was, I was, not to put too fine a point on it, I certainly adopted the uh, philosophy of the hippie, the artist, the creator. I had hopes of being a poet. I wanted to do wild and crazy things. I was responding to the wild and crazy things that were going on in London, Ontario at the time. Jack Chambers, Greg Curnell, the Nile Spizen Band and all sorts of things that were going on in London. So I was interested in the other, the different, the new, the mod. I was smitten on uh, November 9th, 1964 by the Beatles. I followed the Beatles as they evolved and transformed youth culture in the 60s, and I was part of that transformation. And um, I just, res it just, I think at that time, uh, a Kelmscott book would not have resonated, although I did live in England for a year in 71-72 and I did pay my pilgrimage to the British Museum and the British Library and I was overawed by all those wonderful manuscripts and so on and so forth of Shelley and Keats. So there was a, a cultural, there was a, an aesthetic response to the Coaches Press mm. that was also emotional in a sense, I suppose, just bonding with it and just getting a thrill from it. Uh, with the little magazines, that became more of a project to understand the history of modernism in Canada. What was happening with the Coach House was what was happening now. The little magazines that I discovered, and even the magazine like, um, I mentioned a couple of times, Alphabet, spoke about London, Ontario in 1959, 60 through to 68. And that was, it was an, told an amazing story and introduced me to some great writers and the format of the magazine and the printing press. But by the time I found that run of uh, Tamarack Reviews, my position was changing. I realized that, the, the, that this was, these were the materials in the laboratory of the study of the printing of the Canadian 
imagination. And not only were the formats of interest, the editorials were of interest, the contents were of interest. And I soon began to realize uh, that there were more than one or two. There were 600. There were 700. If I included the Francophone magazines, there were 800. And if I included the cultural magazines that I was amassing, there were over a thousand. And this represented intellectual creative production from 1920 to 2000. And so no longer living after 2006, no longer in Canada, I did continue to add for a few years, but the, intellectually it was dormant for me because I'm no longer collecting. I, but I realized it had historical value and research value and importance. So that's what prompted me to find a home for it. Because if I wasn't using it, somebody else certainly could be. So that was the rationale for that. And um, I also knew that, uh, like other university special collections, the Peel, Bruce Peel Special Collection Center is interested in promoting the history of the book. They're interested in collecting and book collecting and collectors. Although vainly, I'm pleased that they accepted the collection. As I say, it was a good deal for them, too. Yeah. They, they got this a... This is a fantastic <laughs> idea. And a fantastic, you executed it beautifully. And I donated it to them uh, without any expectations. I'm not sure whether I answered the question, but... No, you the, didn't. Um, the intellectual work was done on my MA thesis. I spent five years working on that project. I met many publishers, many editors corresponded with a lot of folks, I saw a lot of material. So I felt that that might be the bridge to another narrative. I had uh, the Ken Norris book sort of hovering over me and of course the, the Roy McSkimming and I wasn't sure how to shape this into another book. The, the book really is this catalog and the, and the exhibition that I did at the National Library in 1996 on the Coaches. Well, then listeners can uh, acquire this Available through the University of Alberta Press. They can get the Norris. You can yes. still find that catalogue online that you produced uh, for that exhibition. You, There's some of them around. There are some copies of the... Uh, there are extant copies of New Wave Canada, Small Press in Canada. Mm -hmm. Coach House Press and Small Press in Canada from 1940 to 1968 or something like that. And uh, they can go to Calgary. They can visit the collection and, and, and use the collection in Calgary. And Absolutely. check out, look at, and they can examine, photograph. Photogra and... uh, pho yes, photograph, examine. Catalog gives a good overview of the contents. It, the good news is, is that the collection has been processed and cataloged at Alberta, mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. now possible to actually do an online search and say, well, I'm interested in looking at Above Ground Press. Yeah. I'm interested in looking at the McKnight Coal. Coach House collection or something like that. So you could bring up swaths of material or the Gant de Ciel. Or what do you get? You just get a, a record of it. You get a record get, and then you picture. go and you contact the library and they'll fetch it for you. I see. Okay. Fetch it for you. Just finally, finally, uh, you mentioned that you're working on another project right now. Maybe you could just fill us in on that. Yeah. Uh, in 2008, uh, the University of Pennsylvania acquired the contents of the uh, Gotham Book Mart uh, as it was. In 2005 and uh, we've spent 10 years processing the collection interestingly one of my projects was to ascertain how much Canadian content was actually being sold how many Canadian books and magazines were being sold through the bookstore 
And it wasn't as many as I hoped and expected, but mm. nevertheless, there's traces. And so in February, I'm uh, launching uh, my next exhibit entitled Wise Men Fished Here, a Centennial Exhibition in Honor of the Gotham Bookmark 1920-2020. I've identified 300 pieces out of 200,000 pieces yeah, to put on exhibition. And the exhibition narrates the history of the store from 1920 mm -hmm. to its closure. And there'll be a catalog? There is a catalog in the works. Right. Uh, the exhibition will be taking place in the Kislak Center for Special Collections, Rare Books and Manuscripts at the University of Pennsylvania. And that's in Philadelphia. Right, Philadelphia. And it will run from uh, February 18th to uh, May 31st. And associated with it is a conference entitled Modernism, Materiality and Meaning, which attempts to address some of the discussion we've had today about the physical objects, the materiality of how it was printed, how it was bound, typesetting, topography, and what does that all mean in terms of the final, the final product, in terms of literary meaning, history of the book, and its meaning and the materiality of the object. So, okay, and that, that's where we'll be, be able to get the answer then. I'll have an answer at that time. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. It was a great pleasure. Thank you very much, Nigel. I've been speaking with David McKnight, who is the director of the Annenberg Rare Book and Manuscript Library at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries in Philadelphia. Thanks again. Thank you very much.